You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Jen Wilkin and JT English. On today's episode, we are discussing the story of David and Bathsheba and some of the dominant ways this story is misunderstood in contemporary conversations. This is, I think, a really fruitful, profitable discussion. One fun thing you can play along with uh, if you're listening to the podcast, uh, JT and I both had secret words that Jen did not know about that we threw out in the context of the show. Uh, And if you can catch those, you can tag your guesses, hashtag knowing faith podcast we hope you enjoy the discussion um okay uh we're in uh another episode of knowing faith and uh yeah anybody got any <laughs> anybody we can't got any? start like that no we can't um Let's try again. hold on hold on <laughs> Yeah, we're just going to start. Like, this, somebody just tuned into Knowing Faith and we're laughing. And the reason why is because there's a lot of stuff that you don't hear uh, that happens off air. And I, you know what? There's like, there's a lot. Sometimes I really wish we were recording that stuff. And sometimes I'm really glad. Well, uh, someone did. Someone we're just is hoping they never get fair. mad at yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. He's okay. looking at us right now. He's yeah. got everything. Might make, uh, might make bloopers for He's the staff. Staff uh, dinner. Something I, like I that. gotta be honest. I just was telling Jen. I'm not feeling super great right now, and I feel like. Uh, like I feel like I ate something bad, and at she lunch. wasn't. And she wasn't really comforting. No, the no, first she told me. I said, you, "Are you going to throw up?" And are you contagious? Yeah, and then you asked somebody she to said, call the ambulance. She said, yeah, she said, I don't have time to get what you have. I'm going to be honest. I feel like I ate like bad marinara or something. Like, I just feel like sick. Well, we ate lunch at the same, didn't you order the same thing I ordered? Mm-hmm. I hope it was that. You ordered sausage and I ordered bacon. I hope it was the sausage that took you Why? down. Why are you wishing ill upon me? I don't understand. You literally are compounding it. We've given you opportunities to walk back to be more merciful and you're just driving that nail further home. Okay, well, here we are. We're going to talk about the story of David and Bathsheba, a lady in the night, 2 Samuel 11 through 13, as if not feeling well was already uh, not good enough. Now we've got to sit here and uh, talk through Mm -hmm. a pretty serious story about David and Bathsheba, and one that, um, honestly, the three of us have talked at length about this, but one that is often, if not misunderstood, certainly the emphasis is is wrongly placed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the story of David and Bathsheba. And so just cracking right into it, um, this is one of the more well-known stories. Like if somebody knows two stories about David, they probably know the story of David and Goliath and then the story of David and Bathsheba. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yeah. So pretty popular story. It's in 2 Samuel 11 through 13. So let's kind of retell the story up to this point. What's been happening? When we get to 2 Samuel 11, the story of David and Bathsheba, how it really kicks off, what's really been happening up to that point? Well, we've gone through the death of Saul and then David's rise to the throne. And we've seen the house of David growing stronger and stronger. The house of Saul growing weaker and weaker. And then you get to chapter seven and it's this pivotal moment where you have the Davidic covenant given. David has promised a line that is going to endure forever. Uh, His son is going to reign on the throne forever. And so then you're wondering who is the son? Who is the son? Who is the son? Uh, Meanwhile, we've seen him multiplying wives and concubines throughout the whole story, which was something that he was told not to do. He wasn't, that's one of the ways in particular that he's displaying a tendency to behave as a king like the nations instead of a king unlike the nations. Um, And when we get to the end of chapter 
10. We are in a place where it looks pretty good. Things look pretty like like everything has happened that we would want to happen. David is reigning. They have subdued their enemies. There's been a lot of positive fulfillment of the word of the Lord. And then you just, it's like, don't turn the page, guys. Just mm-hmm. don't turn the page. Yeah. Yeah, so it does look like the anointing promises uh, that were given to David, those have come true. Have come to pass. But we have seen all along these little hints that were being dropped into the text, particularly with the way that David was relating to his wives, uh, specifically having more than one (laughs) and also concubines, (laughs) um, that these were supposed to be red flags thrown for us in the text. Yeah. And they are red flags just to kind of place it in a larger narrative. They're red flags for a lot of Israel's kings. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like these are... um, uh, some of the the character flaws of David show up in a lot of the other leaders, right? And, a lot, and especially Israel's kings. Mm-hmm. I think about Solomon; his son is certainly going to repeat. He is a lot of these problems. When yeah, as we're going to see, even probably during this discussion, the sins of the father are amplified in the sins of the sons. Yeah. So let's just JT. Would you read Second Samuel um, uh, chapter eleven verses one through five, and that'll kind of kick off an opportunity for us to talk through this story and some misunderstandings around it. Yeah, you bet. This is 2 Samuel 7, or sorry, 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 5. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Okay, so David's in Jerusalem. His armies are out at battle. David goes up to his roof. He sees a woman bathing. And a lot of times, particularly in sermons on this passage, um, and we're going to talk more about this, how this passage gets preached in a little while. Um, but uh, what happens here, most, is gonna, most people are going to stop right here, and their first point is going to be, this woman is flaunting her business. Mm-hmm. Okay, is that really what's going on here? Uh, well, actually, I think what we're seeing here is that she, it says she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And so it's interesting. Why is that in there in this parenthetical statement? And uh, obviously it's going to establish for us, this means that she's completed her menstrual cycle. And yeah. so she is, she is actually demonstrating righteousness in that she mm. is abiding by the requirements of the law, but it also establishes that she is not currently pregnant. Yeah. And so, but, but the fact is the first thing that we see about Sheba is that she is observant of Israel's law. Hmm. But why, but like some, okay, I'm sorry. I'm playing devil's advocate here. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I just fine. want to be really yeah, clear. Yeah, be really clear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I feel like when I ask these questions, people are like, man, Kyle just seems to be really antagonistic. Real um, yeah. uh, but why is she not in her private bathroom? Like in her mini bedroomed house. Um, we we aren't told. We don't know why True. this is taking place on the roof. Um, but you know the the thing that is interesting is many of the commentators will acknowledge this. I think it's pretty obvious in the text. The language of how this plays out is very much the language of Genesis chapter three. 
there is a seeing and then there is a desiring and then there is a taking that are happening here in the text. And so I think that should inform the way that we read this portion of the story and also the way that Nathan is going to confront David about this moment. Um, And what we don't say when we read the Genesis account is that Eve saw the fruit on the tree and the tree was real, the fruit was really trying to sell itself. You know, like the fruit was turning this way and that to make sure that Eve saw it and the fruit was, you know, what the fruit was tempting Eve. It is not the fruit that is tempting Eve. Yeah. Yes. Uh, It's the, the fruit is, is, is passive. The fruit is acted upon in the story. Well, and JT, why didn't why didn't Bathsheba just say just say no at the ra- at the risk of sounding crass? Yeah, because and I've heard, uh, I've heard a, a literally a preacher be like the righteous thing for Bathsheba would to do would have been mm-hmm. to just say no at that point. I mean, the power dynamic between somebody who's bathing and then the king who's sitting up on his roof is u- universes apart. Yeah, she's not in a position to say no. She's mm-hmm. in a position to be taken advantage of. And that's exactly what's happened. I mean, there's injustice, objectification, dehumanization. She's just not in a place where she feels that she can say no. This is a grave injustice being done by David. Yeah. So David doesn't look at her as another daughter of Israel. He looks at her as merely an opportunity to satiate this desire that he feels. That's right. Yeah, I mean, not only that, but if you look at the language, there's a, there are other clues here that are given to help us understand how to read this. And one of them is that she's the daughter of Eliam, which we find out um, further on in the text makes her the granddaughter of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, who is a Canaanite. Yeah. And then she's married to Uriah the Hittite, mm-hmm. who is also a Canaanite. And so not only is she a woman bathing on a roof, but she is married to a person of little consequence mm-hmm. who is an outsider. And she herself is the granddaughter of a, of a person who is an outsider. And so she, is, with a picture that's being not only that, but he's on the roof looking down. And yeah. that, that's illustrating even just the, the social stratification of the whole thing, um, that he is high and lifted up and she is the the least and the lowest. And you've hit this so many times already on this podcast and in the teaching in the Bible studies is wicked kings take. Take, that's right. And, and that's, that's exactly the language you hear. David took her. Yeah, and it's specifically put in there to mm-hmm. cue us to think back to Samuel and mm-hmm. the words that he had. This was not an offer of, would you like to come? Yeah. To yep. a bedroom. It was a uh, taking. Yeah, and you hit on this just a minute ago, JT, and it's something we have talked about. I think we've talked about it on this show before. Um, but... There is um, a lot of times we read the Bible and these stories as if they're happening in a vacuum, Mm -hmm. but there is a very real power dynamic on display here. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, particularly there is, there's an uncomfortability among the Christian community to acknowledge how sometimes people in the Bible, characters in the Bible, who we want to be high and noble, abuse that power dynamic for their own gain, but they do that they do that Mm -hmm. just like other people in the world do that just like we as christians do that right so it's not just that like david's the only one who's ever abused the power dynamic but he is one who has Mm -hmm. yeah one of the things that's interesting here i don't want to get us too far off topic but we've just done a podcast recently on humble calvinism right and a tenet of calvinism is total depravity but for some reason in some reformed communities we're only comfortable talking about total depravity as it relates to individuals, not systems of injustice or power dynamics, mm-hmm. that there wouldn't be some kind of a system in place that would itself be totally depraved. Uh, it's something that the reform community should be entirely familiar with and sure. wanting to be repentant of. But for some reason, 
that isn't readily acknowledged. But I think that's something that we see here. Oh, yeah. Is that it's not just that David is totally depraved. He is. But he's also taking advantage of a system that's depraved also, where the strong get stronger and the weak are are taken advantage of. And that's not God's righteous way. No. But it is an abuse of that system. That's right. And it's an abuse of power. And so when we're thinking about the full breadth of David's wickedness here, because oftentimes this story is really just trivialized into... and I say trivialized, uh, adultery is a very serious thing. And um, the Bible condemns adultery uh, and uh, and says that adultery is wrong. So you don't need to uh, ask, does the Bible think adultery is a positive thing? The Bible is unified in its view that adultery is wrong. But a lot of times the take on this story is just David committed adultery, mm-hmm. that that's well, the gravest thing that happened. Often it's that David and Bathsheba yes. committed adultery. And uh, and I think there is a desire to romanticize David and, to ro- and because he's going to marry Bathsheba, and in our minds that means, and they lived happily ever after, um, that uh, that's what's going on here. Is this adultery? Yes, it is adultery in the sense that when we find Nathan coming to David and telling him his sin, we find that David has adulterated what was a pure and happy marriage. Um, So it is adultery, but we have cultural baggage around the term adultery Mm -hmm. to where when we hear adultery, we think affair. We think that two people who were equally... um, had equal agency in yeah. the matter, looked at one another and thought that the other was attractive and then broke up their marriages to begin a sexual relationship. Is that this story? No. no. It doesn't equal appear. agency. Yeah. That's helpful category. Yeah. Like that, I like that term. Yeah. Or those, that phrase. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, because just, and this should be disagreeable to no one, but David and Bathsheba were not equals. No. 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 I mean, at the risk of just pointing out what we've obviously stated, they are very different. David holds the highest position in Israel. And Bathsheba, as Janice pointed out, is marginalized by at least three different things, right? Yeah. Like who her father was, who her husband is, Mm -hmm. and then just her status in Israel. And she's a woman. Yeah, her gender gender too. And, And the thing that's interesting too, the text is also cueing us to her objectification by the fact that she's named by someone other than David. Um, in verse uh, three, when he goes to inquire who she is. And then after that, she is not named again until after this whole thing has played out. She's referred to as the woman. Mm. Yeah. So it's like she, like the act itself is, de- the story is like telling it, like she's, she becomes nameless. There, 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 I think that the narrator is asking us to see her the way that David sees her. Okay. She is a category. Mm-hmm. She is a commodity oh, instead wow. of she is a human with a name. Jen, is there anything here, and Kyle, you, you two, I, obviously this is a highly sexualized story. Yeah. Not taking away from that at all. Is there anything here in terms of David's desire that also relates to him by his own means and effort trying to bring about the promises of God? You're talking he, about with the son? Yeah. So like it's his son that is going to build God's house, and he's looking for a son. You think of like Abraham, for example. He has sons. Right. Y- yes, but with Abraham, so I guess I'm just wondering really if there's any, if there's any, pa- if there's any parallels to Abraham needing an offspring and a son. Well, we do certainly see that when we get to um, the the child that is conceived as a result of this, yeah. that that child is the child of um, the will of man, as we see with, that's, that's with, what I'm yeah, saying with, with um, Ishmael, the child born of the will of Isn't man. Isn't Solomon uh, the son, the next son? Yes. So that's what I'm saying. Here. Yeah, yeah. 
is I'm wonder I'm just wondering if they're I think that seems like you could mm-hmm. retroactively see that it played out that way but I don't feel I don't, I don't, I don't, want to I don't think anything. David yeah, is Yeah David's not like I no. No, I need the promised son Now I do think that when David intercedes Not in a righteous way hear me the right way I'm not saying he's right. doing it No 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 I get it okay. No I do think when we see David you know where God says the child is going to die and then David intercedes and asks that the child not die I do think that that's very similar to intentionally similar to the way we see Abraham say oh that Ishmael might live before you. Mm. I do think there's that. Okay. Um, but I do think too what we're seeing uh, play out is um, in James chapter 1, 15, 14 and 15, um, James says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown gives forth death Mm. brings forth death so we see um that the woman the woman as she's referred to becomes pregnant and then the child will ultimately die um it's it's an upsetting story and so i i I need to tell people who are listening to this who are hearing me reference the death of the child and just keep moving i don't mean to spend only a little portion of um the emphasis on that we spent a great deal of time on it in the teaching that we did in the women's Um, class, and I would imagine in the men's classes as well. Um, but it, it's an aspect of the story that is trying to tell us that when, when, when the serpent says, you will not surely die, uh, that the serpent is a liar. Yeah. That, there, that death doesn't Death come follows back. sin, yeah. right. And, and what we see in this story is the same pattern of Genesis where we see, I see, I want, I take. And then the immediate next thing that begins to happen um, in verse 6 is, I conceal yeah. Which is what Adam and Eve do. Right. They hide. Mm-hmm. Trying to hide. Mm-hmm. And they can't. Um, <clears throat> uh, and we're going to get to the exposing of this with Nathan in chapter 12 in just a minute. But I wanted to pause and just remind the listeners that have been following along with this story. Isn't David a man after God's own heart? Like, how does this square with that? And I know we've said that. We've kind of distinguished. But could we again talk about how does this square with a man of God's own heart? Because when people know David, that's like the bumper sticker on the David story. Yeah. I mean, this is, Jen, you helped me see this more than I, I mean, that's the way I would have read these passages mm-hmm. until a few years ago, until you and I were sat down and did, I mean, that's what's fun about this podcast for me, is these podcasts are often just kind of listening into conversations that we're actually having as mm-hmm. we do theology mm-hmm. together. So maybe just a quick side note there. If you're listening to this, don't just listen to us. Have these conversations with roommates, spouse, yeah. dialogue, because that's where we learn. It's yeah. not that we just read books and come in here. We're <laughs> learning in the midst of in the midst of conversation, and, mm-hmm. and like you can't learn something unless you were wrong or didn't understand in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so, this is something I think I've learned really well from you, Jen. Is uh, is this idea that that David is this man to be emulated? And there are things that are meant to be emulated, just like any character in the mm-hmm. Bible, or to be learned from, or at least gleaned from. But you help me see that this is not so much a man after God's own heart, but a man of God's choosing. And that helps me understand even the gospel so much more. I mean, that just clarifies so much about what is being accomplished for us by the son of David. Right. That I don't need to be a man after God's own heart, mm-hmm. but that God's heart chose me. That mm-hmm. I'm a man of God's choosing, not yeah. because of something in me that uh, somehow... Was so chivalrous or brave or noble. Yeah, yeah, there wasn't something about me that God saw and looked down the corridor of time and said, he is a man after my heart, mm-hmm. I'm going to choose him. There is nothing, this is, again, getting back to Calvinism, this is unconditional election. There was nothing about David that conditioned God That's right. to be predisposed to him. It wasn't that he was somehow... Incre- so different than Saul. As a matter of fact, we see a lot of similarities between him and Saul, in these te- especially in this text in particular. He's a man that's going to take. But it's by God's kind mercy 
that he chose David and he became a man of God's choosing. Well, I think too of the just the lyric in A Mighty Fortress. The um, talk more. Did we, this is my favorite hymn. Did we in our own strength confide mm-hmm. our battle would be losing? Mm-hmm. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. That's right. Yeah. And I, I, I think back to that lyric, I've sung it my whole life. And then to find that it was actually embedded here in First mm-hmm. and Second Samuel, that idea, but it had become obscured in the phrasing of a man after God's own heart. Yeah. Um, and again, I think man after God's own heart is a way of expressing that idea, but but in it's culturally lost on us because we have so many wrong associations about our hearts and about and and we have this strong impulse to say that the way that David points to Christ is more often in a positive regard than in a negative regard and I just I don't think we have to do that. I think yeah. that the beauty of Christ is apparent in both David's successes if that's the right word and his failures. Well, it's much harder to tell the David's story the right way than it is to tell it the way it's often told. When we start looking for the textual clues and taking these stories in the context of the whole book, I, I Nothing has, no other, probably no other story in the Bible has shifted so much for me when placed in its context than this one. Yeah. Because before it's like you can, you really have to just kind of ignore the seedy parts of David's life for the really good, like, look, shouldn't we follow David kind of parts of his life? He's a man after God's own heart. And then you have to look at someone like Bathsheba and be like, well, look at Psalm 51. He did confess. Mm -hmm. Like, that's still a good thing. And you're like... Yeah, David did good things. He also did bad things. And that's okay because that's how everybody but Jesus has been. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at courageforlifebible.com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. So David's um, wickedness here is not just that he um, looked and took, mm-hmm. but it's that he concealed, mm-hmm. right? That's part of it. Mm-hmm. So he look, he looks, he takes, he conceals. And then, and then the act gives birth gives birth to death, as right. James says, and not not just the death of the child, as we've already mentioned. It's the immediately, it's the death of Uriah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what's incredible about Uriah too is, is part of the passage talks. So he gets brought back, right? So mm-hmm. everyone's also, everyone is at war. And Which is says, where David was supposed David to be. should be out at yeah. war. That's where the kings go. Uh, he brings Uriah back and he basically says, David says to Uriah, go to your house. And he says, the ark 
and Israel of Judah dwell in booths, and my Lord Joab and his servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? Mm-hmm. Which strikes this parallel to what David yep. has just said in Second Samuel 7, of I live in this palace and we need to build a house for, for you. Mm-hmm. And so you see that this man of Kurt who's saying it is, it's just this right posture towards the presence of God that David has lost three chapters later Mm -hmm. and Uriah, this man of of insignificance, Mm -hmm. I mean, is going to be put on the front lines, still has. Mm -hmm. Well, you could even argue that David was beginning to make that turn when he says, I should build uh, Mm -hmm. a palace like my palace. Mm -hmm. David's thought is, how can I bring God up to where I am? Mm -hmm. And Uriah's attitude is, how can I go wherever God is? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and I wonder too, I found myself wondering as we were getting into this, if maybe the reason that God does not allow David David to be the builder of the temple is because of this. He was okay, so he was thinking about it just yeah. totally differently. Yeah, I don't know. That yeah. was just something that kind of struck me as we were going through that part. But the Lord doesn't allow that to stay concealed. No. And so Nathan, who is a prophet, right, addresses David. Yeah. One one more thing before we get to yeah, that, because yeah, it's a pattern that we need to be tracking in the text, and that is that Uriah, who is a, a Canaanite. Yeah gives the faithful profession, which is the pattern that we see throughout the book, um, is that the outsider is the one who tends to speak the truest word about God or the mm. truest desire for God. And that's elsewhere too. I mean, that's that's Rahab, right? Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's throughout scripture. It's the centurion yeah. soldier at the cross. That's right. All of Israel is condi- crucified, crucified with the centurion saying, surely this was the son of God. Mm-hmm. And we'll see it uh, later on in the book of Samuel. There's a, there's a Cushite who comes to report the death of Absalom and the Cushite is the one who tells the truth hmm. and um, you know from 1500 miles away from where all of this is going on yeah. and and just this this reminder to Israel hey Israel sometimes those outside the camp are the ones who will see more clearly and it's this promise pointing toward the the gathering in of the Gentiles pretty cool I love that and I'm glad we didn't miss it thank you for calling back on that um, so Nathan Nathan shows up and he addresses what David wants to keep hidden and he confronts David with this rebuke. Um, and so this is in chapter 12. What's going on here? Why is this significant? Like what's Nathan's pointed critique on David? Well, it's almost like a parable. He's telling him a, mm-hmm. a parable where he's saying there's a rich man and a poor man. It was, the rich man has a flock. The poor man has this you and then uh, this, this lamb. And ultimately through a sequence of events, the rich man takes the lamb from the poor man and sacrifices it. And David just is incensed by this. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is overwhelmed that somebody with so much would do this great injustice through again a power dynamic and through injustice and would take the very little that the poor man had for his own benefit and he says as the lord lives the man who has done this deserves to die and then nathan nathan says to him in second samuel 12 verse 7 nathan says to david you are this man Mm -hmm. which how many times have we read the bible and had similar experiences mm-hmm. yeah. where you can read yourself into, story, into the story the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what David's doing here. And he realizes, oh my goodness, mm-hmm. I'm a different character than I thought I was in this story. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the, the villain, not the victor yeah. in this story. I do think it's a parable, and I think just as we would do with a parable, it helps if we slow down and identify who each of the characters is in the parable. And that was something that had never been... I'd heard the prophecy read, and it was like, oh, David's busted, but not this is how this story is designed. Because think about it. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, and that would be a reference to David's 
wives and concubines, mm-hmm. right? You had all of these wives and concubines, but, but we're not done yet because um, they're just flocks and herds. But then we find out that um, there's a poor man. So we're getting the power dynamic contrast there right away, right? David has, not only does he have a lot of things, but he has a lot of power. Um, but then there's the one little ewe lamb and the one little ewe lamb is not just flocks and herds for consumption. It is treated like a family member. Mm -hmm. And specifically he says that it was treated as a daughter to him. And that's a little, it throws us off because we would expect a different analogy there because we know that it's referring to Uriah's wife, Mm -hmm. but the Hebrew word for daughter is what? Bot which is the first syllable in Bathsheba's name. Mm. And so he's actually already bringing them to, bringing David into a hint of what the punchline is going to be. But where it gets interesting for me is when Nathan says, now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So we see a lamb that was clearly not intended for slaughter, led as a lamb to the slaughter hmm. and slaughtered for what? A traveler. And hmm. so then the question is, who is the traveler that comes to David? And I think the answer is it's lust. Hmm. So the parable shows us Bathsheba sacrificed on the altar of David's lust. He had wives and concubines at his disposal to satisfy his lust and instead for his consumption. I mean, that's what's right. implied here. Mm-hmm. And instead he goes and takes a prized possession of someone mm. else that was never intended to be consumed and he consumes it. Mm. Chilling. It is chilling. I have uh, every connection you just made there. I've never heard before. Like uh, uh, in a, like that's all, that all seems to jive and make more sense of this than I've ever been able to make sense of this because I typically rush right through it. Like I rush right through it to the you the man part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Because like here's the here's the review. I've never heard the bot part before. That's yeah. new. Yeah. Where it's well, like, here's the exhortation. Like let me get you to where, where he's aiming at. He's right. It's where, well, and again, think about how, how mm. driven we we want the application point. We don't want to fight through the part that comes before the application point. Yeah. But there is another really beautiful thing that's happening here. And um, we kind of blew right past it, but it frames up the whole story. And it's the beginning of verse one in chapter 12. It says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Mm. And this is like where we're, we're living in the tragedy of this up until this moment wondering, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. And it's still gonna be bad, but we see this message of hope. The Lord sent Nathan to David because the word sent had appeared 12 times in chapter 11. David sent multiple times. Bathsheba is um, sent for, and she sends word, and Joab sends. And then when we get to chapter 12, it is God who is sending, and he's sending forth his word, and it will ultimately be for David's salvation. Just the kindness of God still to pursue David. Yeah. Even in the midst, just like the Lord walking in the cool of the day, right? Saying like, where are you? Where are you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep kindness of God to continue to pursue his people even when they run. What are we to learn from this story with David and Bathsheba? Yikes. What are we to learn? I mean, I think um, sin brings death. Mm-hmm. I mean, James 1, and that continues here, as David's child dies, the child that's conceived, I mean, it's just a, and again, we did an episode uh, a 
few weeks ago on this, you should not necessarily draw one-to-one correlations in your life yeah. from biblical stories. Right. So don't think that the suffering you're going through or death of a family member or death that might be facing you is a one-to-one correlation to a sin in your life. Mm-hmm. Right. That is not what mm-hmm. we're saying. We're saying here, those who are a part of God's kind of redemptive plan as they were stepping outside the bounds of what God had ordained for them, that sin brought death in their yeah. lives. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that happens with this story is it gets, it's immediately followed by the story of Amnon raping Tamar and Absalom killing Amnon. And so David um, takes Bathsheba to satisfy his lust and he kills Uriah to make things easier. And his sons will, Amnon will take his sister, the word took is in that story again. Uh, and then um, brother will murder brother. And so you see this amplification of the hmm. sin of the father and the sin of the sons. Uh, but not just that. I, I think if we're looking for a lesson to take from this, it is be careful what you begin. Um, because hmm. I think we tell ourselves that our sin is our business. Yep. But sin always right. has consequences yes. for others as well. Yep. And, and we, can't always, we cannot calculate uh, the cost of a personal choice. Um, among which is why you know the great commandment is love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And in the story of David and Bathsheba, we see that when we when we treat the things of God with contempt, we will treat our neighbor with contempt and ourselves with yeah. contempt as well. Yeah, Jen, can you help me understand part of the end of this paragraph? So David learns of the child's death, mm-hmm. and you would expect his response to be one of incredible remorse, grief, and it is, Mm -hmm. right? But it says in the text that he learns that he's dead. So David arose from the earth, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. He went to the house of the Lord and worshiped. And later it says he he eats and has this feast. Like he gets a big steak dinner, has big Newton's chip. Like he just has this feast set Mm -hmm. up for himself. Why? I don't know. There was a lot of conversation about it in in the commentaries, sort of a, a lot of, uh, we're not really sure if he's just, it's a sign of him just accepting the will of the Lord or if it's callous. I mean, some people wanted to make it callous because then we will see him uh, grieve so deeply over Absalom later mm-hmm. on in the story. And so there's a lot of question about what's the difference between um, the way that he responds here and the way that he responds there. I don't know. Anybody got any thoughts? I don't. No. I, I genuinely don't. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't thought about it at all. I do like, you actually helped me, JT, with, there was this really cool part here in verse 23 um, of chapter 15. Mm-hmm. Chapter 12. Sorry, I got ahead of myself. You're fine. Um, where David says, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Mm-hmm. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And you pointed out to me um, how this is actually sort of an inversion of what we see with Christ, mm-hmm. um, that that um, Christ does come back again, uh, that he's, 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 he is dead, but he rises, um, and that we, uh, he will come to us. We don't go to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was really cool, and it made me think of that uh, liturgical statement of the church, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's just the inversion of this The true thing. son of David. Yeah, the true son of David. Born of a woman will die on our behalf, but he will come back. He does come back from the dead. Yeah. And he will come back for us again. Yeah. 
It's a sobering story, but that's a hopeful note to end on in light of the whole other story that we were covering. <clears throat> for more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. On our next episode, we're going to be talking um, about the Lord's Supper with the wonderful, amazing King. See you next time. Grace and peace. Peace.